I was asked to share my prayer journey with you this morning, and that's something that I'm very happy to do. I enjoy doing that. Um, from a child and growing up, if you would put a label on it, you would be able to say that I was raised in a legalistic home, and I know my mother loved the Lord, but Growing up, I didn't know or see anything that related to having a close friendship with God, having a faith-saving relationship with Him. I felt obligated to pray and study. And I basically prayed the same prayer every day. I would pray for the family, for the missionaries and call porters. And mine was an awkward journey to finding real peace and friendship with God. Actually, when I was in college and I met Roger and we got married and we started out, we finished up 44 years of ministry, but just as we were starting out in one of our early churches, my best friend in the church, Judy Rumminson, says to me one Sabbath afternoon, we were going on a hike, and just as bubbly as she could, she says, Helen, tell me, how did you come to know the Lord? Boy, that question took me back. I didn't really answer right away, and I thought quickly, what do you mean, how did I come to know the Lord? I'm the pastor's wife. What do you mean by that? And I thought, I, I've been an Adventist all my life. I was born into an Adventist home. I went to Adventist grade school, academy, college. What do you mean, how did I come to know the Lord? I had studied my lesson every day. I had a check in every box. And in Sabbath school, by my name, was a solid row of gold stars. What do you mean? How did I come to know the Lord? And I didn't really have an answer. And I can remember saying something like, well, I've always been in the church. Always. Always. And I thought, always. That question haunted me. It haunted me for a long time. And I finally talked to my sister because, after all, we were both raised in the same home, and maybe she could explain it to me. And she said, Helen, just try spending more time with God. Start, start reading the Bible, and just maybe you'll get to know him better. And I said, wow. She says, get up early in the morning. And I said, are you serious? I said, our son was just a year old. He was already getting up about six. And I said, and you want me to get up before that? She said, don't worry about it. Just ask God. Say, Lord, if you want me to spend time with you, wake me up. So I thought, okay, if it's that easy. I asked God that. I said, Lord, that very night, if you want me to spend time with you, wake me up. Next morning, 4.30, wide awake. And it was almost like I could feel a little tap on my shoulder saying, excuse me, but you asked me to get you up. So I quietly went out of the bed, went into the living room, and I started studying the Bible. Oh, it was awkward. I, where do you begin? If you really don't know the Lord, where, where do you begin? Do you just open it up? What, what do you do? It was awkward. And pretty soon... God willing, someone gave me these little thin purple pamphlets that Morris Venden had written, and I read those along with my Bible out there 
early wee hours of the morning by myself. And one morning, I just had the most amazing discovery. It was, it was really mind-blowing. It was like somebody had turned a light on in a dark room. And for the first time in my life, the very first time, I realized my battle is not to fight sin. My battle is to stay connected with Jesus. And I was out there alone in the room, and I kind of went, I was so shocked. It just turned everything upside down. And I started noticing that my prayer walk started turning from obligation to joy. And now I had an awful lot to talk to the Lord about. Because I had been reading the Bible all of my life, maybe some of you do now, and you miss what it's really saying, or you don't apply it. Like the things that God says in the Bible are amazing, and if you really read them, it's, it's pretty radical what God tells you to do according to what natural comes natural. And I would have to have a lot of conversations with God about what I was reading because I hadn't been applying it. But I brought this with me this morning because I want to tell you about this Bible. This is the Life Application Bible, New Revised Standard Version. This Bible converted me. This Bible has a lot of pages and tiny little print, but at the bottom, it has all the helps in it. The Life Application helps. And as I was reading it through cover to cover, including every one of the helps, I was in the book of Esther, and I was reading that book, and I got to the bottom reading about the helps. And I, I read the section that it said, Are you a Haman? Do things happen in your life that you don't think are fair? Or that you feel like, hey, somebody got it all wrong, and I, I'm not, this is not right, what's happening to me? I was home alone, sitting and studying at my desk, and I raised my hand up like this, and I said, yes, Jesus, I am a Haman. I get stink eye about stuff, and I have problems about stuff, and I need help, and so I started reading on, and it said the next time, in this Bible, it said the next time that something happens, that somebody says something horrible to you that really hurts your feelings or you feel left out or something isn't right or you're misjudged, try letting it go. And I was like, seriously, God? Seriously? And I would just talk out loud to the Lord, and many times Roger would say to me, Honey, who are you talking to? And I'd say, It's all right, I'm just praying. There were things I had to work out, like, seriously, God? Well, this just happened, and, and you're telling me, try letting it go? That was really, really hard. This is when God started telling me and teaching me about surrender. Because, you know, we've all heard, create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. But I didn't know what it meant to surrender to God. I didn't have a clue, and I was praying and asking for help on something that I really needed help on. This was a long struggle, 
praying every day. And finally, one day, as clear as a bell, I heard it. You are the problem. Jesus is the answer. Surrender is the solution. And I'm like, what? What? Because it was so reasonable what I was praying about. You see, I, used to, I knew how to pray. Oh, yes, I knew how to pray. I prayed exactly what God should impress in everybody's minds. Or if there was a group, I knew just what they should be doing. I knew exactly what that group needed to do or what this needed to happen. And so I would tell God. And he would bring me back. You are the problem. Jesus is the answer. Surrender is the solution. And finally, after three months of an intense struggle... It got through my thick head. Jesus telling me, you are the problem. Jesus is the answer. Surrender is the solution. I was the problem because no matter how right I thought I was, I put the problem on the throne and I would knock Jesus off. I would lay in the bed at night stewing over something and feeling icky about it. And God says to me, back off. You think you know how something should turn out. You think you know how this group should do something. Your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Back off. Just give it to me. And wow, what a relief that was. What a relief that was. And I'm here to tell you that created a lot of conversations with Jesus because I had I had known all the right things to do I knew as a good little Christian I had to be on my knees praying with tears running down my face I knew that that's what it required and seriously giving it to God but then when I finally understood surrender that you give it with every fiber of your being absolutely every fiber of your being, then you get the complete help that you need. I was going through all the motions, but I really didn't want God messing with it. I didn't want him taking it. I wasn't through chewing on it. I wasn't through, I didn't really give it to God. But when I finally learned the thing of surrender, it's, It's not hard for me. And the thing that's so amazing is that I started noticing that things that used to really bother me, things that used to really hurt my feelings, didn't bother me at all anymore. Because when I tried the letting it go, oh, that was hard. I stopped sharing stuff with Roger, negative stuff, stuff that would happen. Something, somebody would say something to me that was hurtful or something to me about him that was hurtful. I just didn't, I just tried letting it go. And the more that I tried letting it go and the more that I tried letting it go, I discovered it had no power over me, absolutely no power over me. I just had to have conversations with God and he would take care of it. Around this time, when I fully learned the concept of surrender, I had grown up always hearing the John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We all know that one. 
We sing it in our praise songs. We hear it all the time. We focus on the fact that God loves us, and he does. But I started noticing something else in Old Testament and New, that we are to love God. Matthew 22, 37 uh, to 40, Mark 12, 30 to 31. These are red-letter editions in Jesus' own words. When he was here, he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and you shall love thy neighbor as thyself. That's pretty heavy. Love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Well, how do we do that, Lord? And love someone else the same as you love yourself? How do you do that? I just kept reading, and I just kept studying, and I just kept praying. And I've read the Bible cover to cover many times, and each time I read it through cover to cover, I find a different translation because God says the same thing to me in yet a different way, and I love it. But how do you love the Lord? I just kept studying. I just kept praying. And one day... I realized something, and I laughed, and I said to Roger, you know, nothing looks different about me now than it did when I was a young girl growing up feeling like I had to do all these things or I wasn't going to make it, that this is what I had to do to, to be right with God. I'm doing things as stringently and more so than I was as a young girl because I have completely fallen in love with Jesus. And I'll be in the middle of doing something and I can hear God say to me, you don't need to be doing that. And it's like, no, Lord, I don't. I don't. Thank you for saying it to me. I want to live to honor you. I want to be your own dear child. Thank you, dear God. I don't need to be doing that. And I want to start each day saying, Lord, I don't want to go to the right. I don't want to go to the left without you being in it. Put in my brain every day what you want me to do and how you want me to think what I need to do for this day. Well, when I fell in love with Jesus with every fiber of my being, I noticed two things that had changed about my life. One was that I developed a love for people. Many times, maybe some of you have heard me say it, I hear myself say it all the time when I leave a group of friends, I'll see you guys, I love all you good people. And I say that because I do love all you good people. But here's the thing, I love all the people that aren't so good. I love the homeless people, I love all of them. This is not how I've always been, but falling in love with Jesus caused this to happen to me. I'm driving down the road all the time seeing homeless people, and I'll pray for them. And many times God gives me an opportunity to actually talk with them, to pray with them. And I never leave them without saying to them, you are God's own dear child, and he loves you. The other thing I noticed is that I stopped seeing other people's faults. I did. I stopped seeing what they did or didn't do. I stopped noticing those kinds of things. 
but I started really seeing my own faults. And I have to tell you, I pray and ask God to help me. I'm a work in progress, and I say, Lord, help me to be safe to save, because God helps me to see my own faults. I want you to know I'm a grandmother. This has been a life journey for me. This did not come overnight. And I'd like to leave you today with Jeremiah 29, verse 33. Ye shall seek me, and ye shall find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Good morning, church family. I'd like to say just a little prayer before we start. Dear Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Wow, there's a lot of people out there. <laughs> I've been so blessed already this morning that I can, I'm just so full of joy and just so emotional that it's so beautiful to see so many of you out there. For those of you who don't know me, um, my name is Lindia. And I just want to say how privileged I am to be able to speak up here with you this morning. I feel so humbled to be able to share what God has placed on my heart. That said, I am not a preacher. I am not an author. I'm not a biblical scholar. But I am a child of God, a woman of faith, <clears throat> and a sister in Christ who loves him with all my heart. And I would much rather be in the kitchen cooking behind the scenes than being up front here with you. And honestly, it was even more scary when I found out it was Pastor Steve's first week here. So today you are going to witness the power of prayer. In summing up my thoughts and what God was speaking to me regarding prayer, I have three short points to share with you. The first one is, pray about anything. In James 1.5, it says, if you don't know what you're doing, pray to the Father. He loves to help. Ask boldly, believingly, and without a second thought. The year was 1993. My husband was in his last year of residency. He had one month of no call in three years. And so we decided to go to Guam for a short mission term. We were hoping it would turn into a long-term mission term and that we would be there. Uh, my husband would be working at the pediatric clinic. My kids would be loving and serving God in the mission field. We would even have some of our um, medical school loans paid off. We told God all about it and asked him, hey, give us a thumbs up, God. This is where we want to be. We asked God believingly and without a second thought. What a perfect and noble plan, right? Wrong. 
After praying about it for a month, we were there. We heard God saying, no, this is not the place I want you to be. What, God? You don't want us to serve here as missionaries? We couldn't believe it. Instead, he sent us to a town called Paradise. My prayers at that time were sufficient, I felt, for a busy wife and mother. Life question asked and answered. Check the box. My second point is, pray fervently and without ceasing. In Romans 8.26, it says, if we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in us and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs and our aching groans. It was now 1996. God had made it very clear to us the reasons why he did not send us to Guam. The pediatrician that had been there had shortly left, and that would have left my husband as the only um, pediatrician there, which would have been really hard as a first job, um, newly out of residency. He would have been really busy. Um, Wouldn't have had a lot of time to spend with family. Um, My dad became very ill at that time. Um, I was traveling down every week to the Bay Area, driving down there, trying to give my family members a break, um, trying to be the nurse down there, help them out a little bit. Um, And I was very pregnant at the time. Um, Guam would have been a long ways to travel back and forth every weekend. Nothing brings a person to their knees more than crisis and children. I was in the middle of both. My dad had needed a new liver at that time. We had no control over this enormous situation and no choice but to pray. My prayer seemed so simplistic for such a big request. I mean, we prayed and prayed and prayed and we were not sure what the answer was going to be. But God was merciful to our family again, and by God's grace, my dad got a new liver at the end of January. I delivered a baby girl at the beginning of February. Life seemed good again. Everything seemed to be on track. My prayers once again had been asked and answered. Check that box. Life question. The year is now 2018. My dad's been passed away for 16 years now. He had survived six years after his liver transplant. Those prayers and answers to prayers, although were at life-changing crossroads for me, seemed to have been so neatly wrapped in a box. I could ask for those big, life-changing things, and God seemed to have answered my prayers. But now I am at another life-changing crossroads in my life. 
Even after all that praying, I feel like in the, just in the last several years, am I more a prayer? My prayers seem more intense. I feel such a strong need of God so much more. I've been on my knees praying, walking, talking, sitting, standing, driving my car, riding my quad, which many times needs lots of prayer. Sometimes even prostrate on the ground, just praying and pleading with God. I tell God, God, I'm laying everything on the altar. I'm laying my kids, my marriage, my job, my future, our finances, everything. I'm laying it all on the altar, just like Abraham. But then I say, God, God, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb that you gave Abraham? Where is the lamb with its horns stuck in the thicket that I can substitute in? That's why I have point number three that God has spoken to me. Ask others whom you trust to pray for you. I belong to a wonderful mixed denominational women's group. We can bring our prayer requests to each other. And these women who love God so much will fervently pray for me. And we pray for each other. I have a group text to my kids, and I could say, please pray for me. I'm going to be on the pulpit today. Please pray for me. I have a group text to my siblings, and they are also praying for me, too. You know, it's, there's something in the power of prayer when others can pray for you. I don't want this life-changing time in my life to pe- be done because I know that God is constantly changing me. I'm a work in progress. Changing me to be more bold with him. Changing me to know him. And in knowing him, seeing his will more clearly. There is one other really fun part when you're in constant prayer with God. Sometimes he'll take names of people and place them on my heart. And I'll get to go up and ask somebody, you know what? How are your kids doing? God's placed their names on my heart this week. And I've been praying for them. And it can be at that very moment or at that very time that they're going through something, and they'll say, you know what? I can't believe that God's asked you to pray because it's at this very time that my kids need prayer. It's amazing what God will say to you when you talk to him. And I see many of you out here who have had the privilege to pray with and for. Thank you for that gift for me. Psalms 145.18 says, God's there, listening for all who pray, and for all who pray and mean it. I need you to know, we, we need you to know that we are so grateful that sort of our integration 
into this church family is a weekend committed to focus on prayer. You know, prayer is the unspoken awareness that we are not on life's journey alone, that he is with us. And we have felt that in our journey here. We know that you have prayed and to be here this Sabbath and talking about prayer and you have blessed my heart so much with that. Um, you need to know that we wouldn't have it any other way than to integrate in this way. Thank you. Um, you also need to know that there is a conflict going on in me that is, like I can hear Delinda's voice saying, just, just stick to the script, Steve. Uh, pace yourself. No blurting right out of the gate. Um, <laughs> because there's a lot in me. I am having a great time this morning. Uh, we rolled on to campus and uh, I dropped Katie off in the youth room and went into the youth uh, center there and hung out with Garrison and good things were happening there. And uh, then there was a moment where I just thought to myself, well, and I think I even said to Garrison, uh, I guess I'll go upstairs and be an adult now. And um, so thanks for what's happening down there. Getting to meet friends in the, in the parking lot and in the foyer has been really a blessing for me. And there are just moments that are really, uh, in my mind, uh, enjoyable. Uh, did you notice how, how Pastor Dan just very administratively uh, placed me by the collection box as my first act as your pastor? I just thought, I just thought, Dan, you really know how to put me right where, where you want me, and uh, you're starting, uh, that's good, and I am so grateful for that and blessed by his love. And then uh, I just was sitting there during part of our song service and thinking, uh, well, that was really strategic, you know, to put all of those retired pastors up here to let me know how much experience I am surrounded by. Um, <laughs> it's just off to a good start. And uh, I walked by the classrooms this morning, and bless you who are loving children in Jesus' name. Uh, we have led youth ministry in Rocky Mountain Conference for the last few years, and we have said over and over, really our mantra has been that the word picture that Jesus created uh, when he told the disciples, bring children to me so that I can bless them. Uh, for us, that is, that is the purest picture of what a disciple is, and that is to bring our children to Jesus so that he can bless them, walk by those um, by those classrooms and was really, really blessed by that. And then uh, for Delinda and I, this is very poignant for us. I walked past the youth room again and I saw Melinda in there in a motorcycle helmet loving on teenagers. And um, that's a big moment for us this morning because Melinda and your youth department here in the Paradise Church really impacted both my life. Uh, I was youth pastor in Reading during some of those years, 20 years ago now. Uh, Delinda uh, was in England with the youth group here, and that was very significant in her life's journey. And so we are, we are very aware that prayer is the, uns is the spoken awareness that, that we are not on this journey alone, and that God has ways of navigating our lives in ways that we never dreamed, and that uh, we get to be here with you all uh, this morning is really a blessing. Uh, we have some social media stuff popped up and it, 
It showed that we were coming to paradise and some of my old youth group kids from Reading in like 97, 98 uh, were messaging me saying, wow, talk about full circle. This is exciting. And I said, yeah, we're, we're excited to see what God has planned in that. So there's other things I could blurt out to you, but I'm pacing myself. That's good. Would you turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 20 as we wrap this morning's message. I mean, there's other things going on in my head too, like has anyone let the, the folk know in the kitchen that potluck's probably stretching out a little bit? And, you know, um, I'm sure you have. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter 20 because we are going to land there in closing. Uh, as told by the ship captain whose life was never the same because of prayer, he told the story of being off the banks, um, off of the banks of Newfoundland. He had been, he and his ship had been socked in by fog. Uh, he had spent 22 hours straight on the bridge because of almost zero visibility. When he was approached by a man that was sailing with them, whose name was George Mueller. And George Mueller approached him and said, Captain, I have an appointment in Quebec on Saturday. This was Wednesday. He said, in 30 years, I have never missed an appointment. We must reach Quebec by Saturday. The sea captain said to George at that moment, he said, sir, this is absolutely impossible. As you can see. George Mueller put his hand on the captain's shoulder and said, let's go down into the chart room and pray that God will clear the fog. Some of you may know the story. The captain goes down into the chart room. They kneel down and pray. George Mueller prays a very simple prayer. The captain said it could have been uttered by an eight-year-old elementary school student. God, you know my appointment in Quebec. I believe that that's your will, that we reach our destination. Please clear the fog so we can sail efficiently. The captain recounted that when George finished his prayer, even though he had not been really a man of faith or prayer prior, he felt this unction that he should probably pray too. And so he began to pray when George Mueller put his hand on his shoulder and stopped him and said, Captain, there's no need for you to pray. First of all, you don't believe that God will clear the fog. Second, I believe that he already has. Let's go upstairs and look. When to the captain's complete disbelief, they reached the upper deck, looked out, and the fog, five minutes later, was completely clear. Completely contrary to natural law, because God's law works on a different format. I love that story. And I believe that story. Seriously, I believe that story. But not all prayer stories are that way, are they? When our middle daughter Ashley was 21 months old, we found through medical uh, scenario that she needed open heart surgery. And it was scheduled just a few days later we had one of our mentors and, and very close friends come up to our church that we were pastoring at the time 
and had an anointing service in a setting much like this. And I remember, I remember being on the front steps while, while our friends and family and the church surrounded us and we prayed that God would heal Ashley's heart. And we anointed her with oil and we went home. And I remember Delinda sitting on the couch Sabbath afternoon And the defect in Ashley's heart was significant enough that you could put your your naked ear to her chest and you could hear it sloshing. And I remember Delinda putting her ear to little baby Ashley's chest and tears running down Delinda's face. And she looked up at me and she said, well, she said, God didn't heal her immediately. Some of you have been through stories like that. We love the George Mueller in the fog clearing in five minutes and we believe it. We've also lived through some of the other scenarios. I remember being a young pastor. Oh man, I guess that was a long time ago. <laughs> I remember facilitating, it was kind of my role to facilitate the, the, the family sharing time. Maybe you do it here some, where we have some time in between Sabbath school and church and we're sharing what God's done in our lives. I remember being the, the pastor facilitating that, and on this side of the church, uh, someone stood up and just praised the Lord because the night before, their daughter on their way home had been just narrowly missed by a drunk driver, and God had spared her life. Hallelujah. What made this awkward for me is that I knew on this side of the church there was a family who in recent years daughter had been killed by a drunk driver. And here we find ourselves in the reality of prayer being the spoken awareness that we are not on life's journey alone regardless of the answer. And that we would not want to be on life's journey alone because prayer has been the lifeline for us in surviving what this world has to dish out at times. Sometimes it's cleared fog. Sometimes it's tragedy we can't explain. And so I'd like you to just read through this story of Second Chronicles chapter 20 with me. I'll read it rapidly. We'll land on a couple of pieces, verses uh, I think will stand out to you from this story. But this is Jehoshaphat's story. Context is people of Israel being invaded. It's tough times for them right now. Verse 1 of chapter 20 says, Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon together with some of the Unites came together to make war against Jehoshaphat. This is not good news. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat saying, A great multitude is coming against us, against you from beyond the sea out of Aram. And behold, they are in Hazen Tamar, that is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention To seek the Lord. If you're jotting down notes or you go back and read this this afternoon, these are the places to land. When we're afraid, turn to seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat's on a good track here. Jehoshaphat was afraid and he turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. 
If you want to make a little note in your margin, this is corporate prayer. I think corporate prayer is significant because it's very difficult for an individual to take the credit to an answered prayer when everybody's praying. God loves to answer corporate prayer because it's clear who answered the prayer. And Jehoshaphat does this. For sake of time, I won't read through his prayer. It goes all the way down through verse 10. And Jehoshaphat says really uh, good things. He says, God, we followed your will. We obeyed you in not driving these people out. They're coming against us. We're resting in your power. We need you to do something great. All of those things. Jehoshaphat, as the leader, does a really great prayer. Verse 11, he starts to wrap it up and says, See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance. He's kind of putting a little piece in there like, God, this is your deal. Verse 12, he says, Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are on you. If you're looking for an anchor verse for your prayer life, this is one of those. I don't know what to do, God. I feel powerless in this family situation, tragedy, work, turmoil, uh, (laughs) my classes or my exams. Like, I don't have what it takes, God. But my eyes are on you. Verse 13, all Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. And then verse 14 is one of my favorite parts of this story. The weirdest thing happens. A guy stands up. Well, we'll we'll read it. Then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel. And people are saying, who's Jehaziel? (laughs) Scripture feels the need to explain who he is because he's pretty unknown. Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeriel, the son of Mattaniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. And he said, now if you were standing there and Jehoshaphat just prayed a really great prayer as the leader and he had gathered everybody together, you'd kind of think God would speak through him, wouldn't you? Like, that's the guy. But God chooses to answer prayers in unexpected ways, doesn't he? If we are praying and expecting him to answer in a way that is apparent and expected, we'll miss it. If the people that day would have said, no, Jehoshaphat said the great prayer. Jehoshaphat called us together. They would have missed what God had for them. And so in your life today, maybe there's something that, that you're missing because you're looking for the expected rather than for God to surprise you with his answer. Jehaziel stands up. It's out of his mouth that we hear these amazing things like the middle part of verse 20. Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude. Some of you need to hear God say, don't be afraid of what you're facing today. Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude for the battle is not yours. Somebody say amen. The battle is not yours but God's. Verse 16, Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves. Stand. 
and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out and face them, for the Lord is with you. That's as true today as it was then. Tomorrow go out, face what you need, for the Lord is with you. He's with you. He really, really is with you. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. The Levites from the sons of, and it gives all these names, and we skip on down. Verse 21 says, When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who had sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire. By the way, the Debbie Downers aren't leading this charge. It's those who praise the Lord in good times and bad. Holy attires, they went out before the army and he said, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. Verse 22, when they began singing and praising the Lord, the Lord set ambushments against the sons of Ammon and they began to destroy each other. Last part of verse 23 says, This is actually one of my favorite parts of the story. Maybe we'll read the whole verse. It says, For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, like this is where where sort of visual imagination comes in. It's like, how did this thing actually end? Because it's kind of cute. They say, say, uh, when they had finished with the inhabitants of Mount Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So like exactly how did this look? Did they like come down to the last two guys and they're like, okay, so you have a sword? Okay, I have a sword. So on the count of three, stab. One, I don't know how it happened. And that's how it is, isn't it? Sometimes we don't know how God fixes things. But we come to realize that he's fixed them in us and in our lives. They helped to destroy one another, and when Judah came and looked out of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, they were corpses lying on the ground. No one had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found much among them, including goods, garments, and valuables, things which they took for themselves, more than they could carry away. And they were three days in taking the spoil, because there was so much. It's a good story, isn't it? This morning I want to say that it's not just a good story. And it's not just the story of Jehoshaphat and an ancient people. It can be our story. It can be our story. Jeremiah 33 verse 3 says, Call on me and I will answer. And he really does. Prayer is the unspoken awareness, or the spoken awareness, that we are not on life's journey alone. That come what may, fear not. The battle's not yours. It's God's. Come to him together. And he'll save you. Call on me. And I will answer. I've found that to be true. I've had moments in my life where 
It has been compulsory calling on God, saying, I need you. And he has been there for me. He's been there for our family. And we've been privy to some of the journeys that some of you have been on in this community over the years. I know that he has been there for you too. And so I look forward to the future here because we'll call on him. We will. We'll call on him together. And he'll answer. Amen. Thank you, Steve. Um, if, I'd like to invite, sorry, you just went down, but I'd like to invite the Hamiltons to come up at this time. And uh, I'd, I'd also like to invite anyone that would like to come up and, you know, put a hand on, on their shoulder or just, um, just come up and as we pray for the Hamilton family and um, not necessarily anoint them with oil, but anoint them with prayer and then ask the Holy Spirit to anoint them. And um, As you come up, I just wanted to share that, you know, Word gets around, and so it's been kind of fun to hear, it's been fun to hear, you know, different people in different places, how did you get Steve Hamilton to come there? And, and it's kind of funny, because it's like, well, we didn't, like, what do I say to that? Well, we had the strategic plan, and we thought that if you asked him, and then if you asked him, and then if you asked him, and after he said no four times, then you ask him, and then he'll say yes, and none of that happened. And there were so many months of, hey, let's get together, and let's pray. And then some of us, maybe I was the only one, it's like, well, aren't we going to do anything? And yet God was doing it the whole time. And so we just, we just praise God for his leading and his guiding, and we're so glad that you're here. And uh, we want to hold up your arms, uh, metaphorically, spiritually, emotionally, as you lead us. I want to say, first of all, that this is not just a prayer of dedication for the Hamilton family. This is a prayer of dedication for our church as we journey together with him and them. Father, we thank you so much for your incredible love. We pray for the Hamilton family as they make a transition. They've torn up their roots. They're ripping clothes out of boxes this morning. Where's that? Where's this? Where are the dishes? Where's the food? Where are the towels? You have disrupted their lives to bring them here. And so, Father, we pray that you will disrupt our lives as we welcome them and we make a difference on this ridge. We pray for Steve as a man, that he is strong in you. We pray for him as a husband and as a father. We pray for him as a servant, as he is here to lead us, to journey with us, to pray with us, to cry with us, to study with us, and to celebrate with us. We dedicate ourselves to you today, that we together as we journey down this road, can be this light on this ridge for you. And all the people said, Amen. Amen.